0: So why don't, why don't we do this? Why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? Uh, if you can't stand for that long of a chapter, that's fine. Just making sure I have a translation I'm familiar with. Not that I think the New King James is the inspired version. It's just the one I've chosen to teach out of. The Buddhist, is that what they use? <laughs> nice. All right. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, And he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, You have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I formed you. Yes, I have made him. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me There was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, And you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. Father, I am so grateful for your word, and who can declare it but you? You can. Range, history, however you please. You can bring all things to your intended end, just as you have done and will do with Israel. Thank you for your promises. Lord, even the promises to them that don't belong to us, because, Lord, it proves to us that you are a God who keeps his word. So, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us tonight and that whatever is applicable to us, that you would change us or that you would make us like you. So, Father, We thank you. And Lord, um, I just pray for um, my brother Michael, whom I have come to just love and appreciate in so many ways. Lord, I'm grateful for his friendship and all that he has done in serving Calvary Chapel and just the, the kingdom and the church as a whole, Lord. Just blessed by his life and his conviction, Lord. I pray that you would just encourage his heart, and whatever remains, Lord, if there is anything undone, I pray that you would wrap it up and that he would just be ushered into your presence with joy. Lord, we pray for his bride as she anticipates, Lord, all of this, that you would strengthen her and comfort her, and uh, Lord, that you would assure her of the future. And Lord, we pray for, for Larry Dean, and we pray for Jack Peterson, Lord, those that have been left behind and uh, that you'd comfort their hearts, Lord. And uh, Lord, that void in their life, we just pray that the fellowship of your spirit would be sufficient and that they would have courage. So bless them, we pray. Thank you for those that have have left us, Lord, so many great and amazing people. And it's been quite the season of late. But Lord, we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. You want this back? Thanks. (laughs) All right, well, we, as always, we, we need to make sure that we're maintaining the context uh, of where we're at in Isaiah, and so we have not uh, changed the the context from the prophecy of Isaiah 39. Uh, Judah is going to be conquered. Uh, they're going to be taken captive by Babylon because of their rebellion against God, because of their moral depravity. They have, um, you know, breached the covenant in so many ways and been disloyal to God. Um, And according to Deuteronomy, they uh, are going to face judgment. I know that we like to focus on the positive promises of God, but when you're in the scriptures, there's both positive and negative. And so God also promises Israel that when they stray and rebel, part of the covenant relationship is that he will bring them back by his own means. And uh, so a lot of this tonight is about that, the means by which God brings his people back in repentance to restore them to worship and fellowship with him. And um, in this chapter, God uh, begins, which is a little different than the chapters preceding it, uh, but here he begins by reassuring Israel that they do belong to him and that he will ultimately redeem them, but then the chapter ends though not the prophecy, with reminder that for their sins, they're just, it's impossible at this point to escape chastisement from the Lord. It's just absolutely necessary. And and that whole principle, of course, we see in the Proverbs, we see in the book of Hebrews, you know, a good father does not allow his children to sin without consequences. Uh, To do so would communicate the father's permissiveness and it would deplete the immoral nature of the child's actions, their behavior. In fact, a father like a judge is actually immoral if he does not treat rebellion with justice. Amen? So God loves his people, but he's also faithful to justice and therefore he will judge his people uh, in the process of redeeming them. So let's, let's get back to verse one here and uh, we'll look at some of the way God speaks to them. He says, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I I love that prophetic present tense, don't you? They're going into Babylon in, in just a generation or so, and he says, I've redeemed you. Okay, from my perspective. It won't feel that way for 70 years, but I have. He says, I've called you by your name, you are mine. So, God declares to rebellious Israel that he created them, formed them, redeemed them, called them, and then he assures them and says, you are mine, you are mine. So the idea is don't lose hope, okay? Discipline is not gonna be fun. It's, it's gonna be really bad. You deserve it, okay? But don't forget in the process of that, you're mine. And then because they belong to him, he says this, <clears throat> when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, we all know this verse because we quote it and sing about it and stuff. I'm not sure that, I think we should be careful quoting promises to Israel, but, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned nor shall the flame scorch you. So here now, he's clearly speaking in the future tense and he's promising to deliver them from their troubles, not that they won't be troubled, Okay. Now, when you first read this, and as, as you've heard Christians quote it, you've probably seen it on a card, uh, you've seen it on something, you've read it, your initial response to it is the language is figurative, isn't it? Because we don't really send this to people and say, thinking they're going to go through deep waters, uh, or they're going to walk through a fire, We don't think that way. We think figuratively like that's water's fire. That's speaking of a trial of some trouble that somebody faces. But now God is looking forward to doing this for them in captivity. And at least the last half was fulfilled literally in Babylon, wasn't it? When? Three Hebrew boys, Mishael, Azariah, Hananiah. We know them by their pagan names, which we we should forget. Amen, yeah. As the text says, when they emerged from the fire, their clothes didn't even smell like fire. This was a literal prophecy, amen. So think about that if you're gonna send this in a card or something like that, that this wasn't figurative. This is for real, okay? And he will do this, he can do this, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. He says, I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba, Seba in your place, since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you, therefore I'll give men for you and people for your life. So just as God delivered the children of Israel from, you know, these former superior powers like Egypt and its surrounding areas, God will, he's going to, and he has done already of course historically, deliver Israel from Babylon, which was the superior force in, on, on planet earth at the time, okay? Purely, he says, because he loved Israel, they're precious to him. Isn't that crazy to think that? That all of their child sacrifice, their idolatry, uh, their evil, that God sees them as a people group. He loves them, they're precious to him. And like a parent, he's just slightly disappointed, right? <laughs> His patience is amazing. He says, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east, gather you from the west. I'll say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. So real quick, north, south, east, west. Does that exactly fit with them being taken to Babylon? Babylon's to the east, So when they're released from Babylon, they'll be brought from the east, but they wouldn't be brought from the north, the south, and certainly not the west, because west of there is water, right? Okay, so it's interesting because those directions aren't in the historical narrative, not with Babylon, of course, later, right? Uh, How many of you guys have been to New York? Did Did you go into any of the Jewish quarters of New York? You did? Okay. So they say that New York is one of the most diverse cities in the world, but now they're saying that Israel is one of the most diverse countries in the world. So when you go to Israel, so if you go to New York, you can meet people from all over the world. When you go to Israel, you can meet Jews from every country in the world. And I mean every country, okay? Uh, When I was there years ago, uh, I would go down to the city square in Netanya and I would just sit and mingle with Jews. And then I would be on the bus, uh, I'd be on the train. I would just talk to Jews and and most of them had uh, a liyad, which means to to go up. Everything in Israel goes up to Jerusalem. And uh, so if you immigrate back to Israel, it's called a to go up. And I met Jews from every country in South America. Yeah, I met Jews from... Uh, Saudi Arabia, from Iran, from Iraq, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, India, China, I, all over Southeast Asia, uh, tons of them for, from Russia, Ashkenazi Jews, all over Europe, okay? Every country in the world. It's astounding. Yeah, astounding. It's just crazy. So, why would God mention, you know, all the directions of the compass here? Well, I I think for a couple of reasons. Prophetically, it's just true in a general sense, okay? That no matter where Israel is scattered to, no no matter where they're pushed to, God will bring them back, okay? So that gives them assurance, amen, that though you'll be taken captive, if for some reason you you end up someplace else, God will call his people back to Israel, okay? But it's also true in the prophetic sense that it will one day actually happen. So in 70 AD, when Titus the Roman came against Jerusalem, he destroyed Jerusalem, took many Jews captive, scattered the other ones, that's when the initial uh, global diaspora began. And then over time, and then because of World War II, the diaspora just exploded from there again. And it was out of World War II that South America was filled with Jews and Nazis, by the way. You've heard about the Nazi Railroad, Underground Railroad, yeah. They were taken to South America, many of them. In fact, Adolf Eichmann um, was secretly captured, extradited, and uh, he's the only uh, person uh, to be executed in Israel. He was executed for many, many, many good reasons. Uh, If you haven't read the story, about uh, Adolf Eichmann, read it. It's one of Mossad's greatest stories. Scattered everywhere. It's just true that wherever God's uh, earthly people end up, um, he will bring them back. In the last days, they will, they will show up in Israel. Just wait and see. Uh, if they don't, we have some serious problems with scripture. Yeah. He says, bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this? What he's been talking about. And show us former things. Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say it is truth. Now in the first seven verses, God promised to preserve, protect, and what we might, might call repatriate Israel in the land. And now God invites his own people who he says are presently deaf and blind, that's spiritually, to gather together with all of the other, that's the surrounding nations that will be involved in all of this, that he might challenge them to do what he has done. That is, I would like to see you. And remember, he's done this multiple times in the chapters up to this point. He's saying, as God, I would, and you claiming to have God's, or your idols supposedly claiming to be gods, I'd like them to see them do what I've just done. I'd like them to make promises and predictions about the future and to ensure that it comes to pass because only a god can do that, okay? So he invites Israel, as it becomes clear after this, to be witnesses of this and for them to kind of, or the nations, to be on the, uh, to, to be essentially prosecuted before God so he challenges them to give a forecast of the future, to make sovereign promises, as he has done, and then bring it all to pass. He says, I would love to see you do that. So he's still demonstrating to his own people, to the pagan idolaters of other nations, that he alone is God Almighty. He says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. So you notice this, the, that there's two words right there in the middle. There's actually two in the Hebrew. It's three in English. I am he. It's an important statement. Uh, I am, amen. So God declares, I am, I am the one. I'm the only God existing eternally, as I am means, and independently of all things. That's important. no being, divine or otherwise has preceded me, and none will follow, none will follow. As Paul says, for by him, speaking of Christ, all, this all comes up a lot in the text, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, And in him all things consist. So what Paul is saying is that all things owe their existence to Christ. He brought it into existence and by his omnipotence he keeps everything in existence. He sustains, he preserves his creation. So it's a logical fallacy to assume that anything exists apart from before or beyond God. This is completely ridiculous. So Joseph Smith, the false prophet of the LDS church, he taught that there is an endless genealogy of gods sired by other gods. That's what he taught. No one God is eternal uh, in Mormon theology. Only the genealogy of endless gods is eternal. But the text says before Yahweh, no God was formed and none shall be formed after him. Uh, Even the God of Mormonism, uh, Joseph Smith said, was once a man who was on another planet, who through progression became a god, and then made his own planet and inhabited it. This is, this is not the god of the Bible, who is god from everlasting to everlasting, as he declares. No beginning, no end. The god of Mormonism is limited in his existence and in his power, So Mormons believe that matter is eternal. And so when God created, he didn't create out from nothing. He used existing materials to fashion what we see around us today. But the scriptures teach that there was nothing but God and then out from nothing, we have everything, okay? Everything. The God of the Bible knows no such limitations as the God of other religions. Um, God does... Uh, have some limitations according to his nature. Uh, He cannot contradict himself, aren't you glad? Uh, He cannot lie, and uh, he cannot make an error. I guess those aren't really limitations, are there? But there's no limits to his knowledge, his power, or his eternal existence. And Israel is his witness. He says, I, even I am the Lord, that's Yahweh, and besides me there is no savior, so there's a little bit of snark in this. All of the, the pagans say there's all of these gods out there. And as he'll, God will say it later, basically, I've looked and I can't find any. I looked and I'm just all alone in this divine existence, okay? He says, I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed. There is no foreign god among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I, I, the emphasis is I, I am God. That is, I am God alone. There's no God, no savior, but Yahweh. The emphasis is I, I, I alone am God. He says, indeed, before the day was, I am, I am he. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand I work and who will reverse it. So God is eternal, He exists before the day, that is before the sun could provide its light. Now, I know that this is an elementary idea in philosophy, but it's logically necessary that the creator come before that which is created, amen? He made the sun and then gave it the ability to shine, okay? And there's no one and no thing, nothing more powerful than Yahweh. Okay. If he decides to save, nothing can stop him, right? And if he does something, no one can reserve it. And see, this is what I, I love about the nature of God's promises. Um, how many guys have made promises that you could not keep because of some circumstance? You intended to, you're even on the way to, but something in the natural world stopped you, like a train. I was gonna pick you up, at this time, but I've been waiting here at the the train crossing for 45 minutes. I think that's my mom's record. And it's no fun when she gets to where she's going after that, okay? So we can make promises, and for whatever reason, we can't fulfill it. But see, God's promise is backed by sovereignty, that there's nothing powerful enough in the universe to stop him from fulfilling a promise. So if he says, I will save, there's no power in the universe that can stop that. And if he has done something, there's nothing that can alter it, reverse it. So the promises of God, that's why they can be yes and amen. Ours cannot, okay? His promises are backed by his, his omnipotence. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, you see all these reminders? The Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. The Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. So now God is really flexing his muscles, okay? Babylon is, is about to rise as the most powerful empire the world has ever seen and will ever see until the end, okay? No king exercised, exercised as much power as Nebuchadnezzar. Every subsequent kingdom, there's been a division of powers somehow, not Nebuchadnezzar, okay? He didn't ask for permission. He didn't sign decrees that he would be controlled by. That was, that was other kings later. He just decided, and whatever he decided went down, okay? So they're gonna rise as the most powerful empire in the world, and yet God says, I will judge them, and I'm going to make them fugitives in their own land, all by myself. I will cause their fall. That's something clearly detailed in the book of Daniel. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power, they shall lie down together, they shall not rise, they are extinguished, they are quenched like a wick. Now the, the verse is referring back to the Exodus when God used Moses to part the sea to bring the children of Israel safely through the water And that same safe passage, he made it into a tomb where he killed all of the Egyptian armies, the charioteers, the horses, and he drowned the emperor of Egypt. He says, as easily as one extinguishes a candle, I snuffed Egypt. And he's relating it to Babylon, the upcoming most powerful empire. As easily as you would pinch a wick, God says that's that's what he's getting at here. He says, do not remember the former things nor consider things of old. He's saying, forget about it. That was nothing. Just wait, okay? Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my Chosen So still reflecting back to the, 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 the wilderness wanderings where God brought water out of the desert to nurture his people. Of course, when you look at how much water was necessary to come out to feed that many or to water that many people, it was a blessing to the animals in the wilderness as well. Okay. And so just as he made paths for them there, he's going to make paths in the desert from Babylon back to Israel. It doesn't matter how dry, nothing can come against the God of creation. And notice again that God calls Israel, though rebellious, my chosen. That is so humbling. He chose them in spite of them. They're his by his own choice. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. I love that, yeah. God chose them. And then he erected a a people group, a nation, out of Jacob. He says, I've done this for myself. And there's no contingency in in choosing. There's no contingency uh, in fashioning them. Guys, if there was a contingency, they wouldn't have got off the ground with Jacob, right? If there were conditions to his promise, it would have ended there, okay? It would have ended There's no contingency for choosing or fashioning them. They're his for his own glory. And when they do not cooperate, he will discipline them to bring them back around so they do. I don't think that should sound strange to us because God has done that to us. We're his kids. And whenever we stray, whenever we sin, whenever we get rebellious, he pulls his belt out and he he redirects us to repentance so that we then enter in again to worship the following after him. How many of you guys have had that happen? Thanks for raising your hand. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good father. Okay. This is a this passage is a prophecy of what God is going to do to Israel in order to bring them back to a place where they worship him again. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings. Now Burnt offerings were dedication offerings. Remember, in the burnt offering, all of the, the, the sacrifice would be consumed and the smoke would rise up to heaven as if all of the sacrifice went to him. So uh, a picture of the person offering their whole life up to God. He says, that has ceased, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. That is, you've taken no pleasure in me, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I I haven't burdened you, but you've burdened me. I I wasn't demanding. I I I didn't weary you. I didn't burden you as a slave for the sacrifices that I'm worthy of, your life that I'm worthy of, not for incense, not for grain offerings, putting little demands upon them, but you have wearied me, So he's saying. You've wearied me with your sins, your iniquities. See, he was patient with them, he was gracious, but they were ungrateful and rebellious. He wasn't asking too much of them, but they wanted every ungodly liberty. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. So the only one that could actually cleanse them, wash them, they've just offended him. And God says, basically, let's get together and talk about it. Maybe you have a good case for yourself. Maybe you can be acquitted. Maybe you can be pardoned from this accusation. They had nothing for their defense. (laughs) He says, your your first father sinned and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. The first part of there, he says, your first father sinned and your mediators have transgressed against me. He says, basically, the transgression of my people can be traced back from now all the way back. That that's all that the history is. You guys have always rebelled. You've always gone astray. Your patriarch and your priests. Their first father is probably a reference to Jacob, because we're we're only focusing right now on the nation of Israel, not other nations. Okay? Now some have assumed that this is Adam, some have assumed Abraham, and even some Isaac. But none of these really fit the bill with precision. Because Adam is the father of all nations. Okay, but we're only talking about one nation. Abraham fathered multiple nations. Isaac also fathered at least one other nation. But Jacob, just one. That's Israel. Of course, they're named after him. So from Jacob until the current era, Israel has been rebellious. So father like son, in this case. And their first ministering priests that's their mediators, he says princes of the sanctuary. Uh, the son, the first two sons of Aaron that ministered as priests, they brought strange fire into the tabernacle and then God killed them for it. So your patriarchs and your priests from the very beginning and it just continued on. I mean think of Eli and his sons. Samuel was faithful but his sons were wayward. Just Israel from her inception, they've been a mess. A perfect God, a wreck for a people. And so because of all this, God says, I'm going to profane the princes, the ones who were supposed to praise me, represent me before the people. I will profane them. And all Israel, he says, will be turned over to the curse, to be scorned by God and the surrounding nations. Now, the curse here uh, is Isaiah is constantly pointing back to the covenant. It's not like um, some ambiguous idea of a curse. He's looking back to Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 68. You remember, they were on two opposite mountains. And they say, if you keep covenant, you'll receive the blessings. But if you violate the covenant, you'll receive the curses. So one half of Israel shouted blessings, the other half shouted cursings. Well, Israel has been nothing but rebellious. So that curse promised in the covenant will come upon them. And just to name a couple, they would be conquered, they would be slaughtered, they would go into captivity, they would be sold into slavery. And they would even worship and serve gods of wood and metal. And then, as it's stated in the text, they would become a byword to all the nations. Why? I think, wow, it's a lot. If, if I read all of that section in Deuteronomy to you, you'd be go, whoa. And all of it would come upon them. You see, and this is super important. No other nation, no other people group was privileged like Israel. Not, not even close. God plucked one people group out of all the people groups in the world, just one. Paul said, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? That is, to be a Jew. He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. That's the word of God. To them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who was overall the eternally blessed God. That's Romans three, one through two, and Romans nine, four through five. All the advantages, all of the profit of being Jewish, of being a Hebrew, they forsook God and his blessings. You know, it must be stated with gravity and received with sobriety. With great privilege comes great responsibility, and with divine revelation comes accountability. The Jews had great privilege. They received much revelation, but because they did not hold to their covenant responsibility, they were held severely accountable. And you guys, the world has witnessed all of it, all of it. Now here's what's important to us. If that is true of Israel, how much more of us? Hebrews chapter two, verse one through four says this. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. So that we do not drift away, for since the message spoken through angels, they were the mediators of the covenant of Moses, it was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? And then he says, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, that's Christ, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So what about us? What advantage then is it to be a Christian? We have all of the scriptures, all of them, okay? With the benefit of volumes of fulfilled prophecy, we have the death and the resurrection of the Son of God, through faith we're the constituents of the new covenant and we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So then, how shall we escape if we neglect or ignore such a great salvation? You see, when the Jews were confronted with this same dilemma, they would say, it's no big deal. We're the children of Abraham, circumcised with the sign of the covenant. We're good. Paul even said of himself, speaking of what he thought about himself as an unbeliever, he said, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Only two other tribes could trace their lineage, tribally. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless, Philippians 3, 4 through 6. But to this kind of foolishness, John the Baptist said, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Therefore, bear fruit, or he says, repent, and bear fruit worthy or consistent with repentance. Matthew 3, 8 through 12. You know, many Christians say similar things to themselves. They do, which is just as foolish as the Jews. They say, oh, I, I gave my heart to Jesus. I've been baptized. I go to church. My parents are Christians. My parents are missionaries. My dad is a pastor. I have heard all of those, every one of those. John would say the same thing to those Christians that he said to the Jews and just as Paul said to the Corinthians. If you do not have fruit in your life that is consistent with repentance, you should have no confidence that you are saved. Zero, zero. James says that faith produces that fruit that is consistent with repentance. People say, Pastor Ben, you can't talk that way to people. You'll, you'll turn them away, you'll, you'll offend them. Do you mean like John, Jesus, and Paul? I'll wear that badge, okay? No, I have to talk that way because it's actually a part of my calling. I'll give you an example. Paul says, Christ we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So presenting man perfect, that in the Greek really just means mature in Christ Jesus. It cannot be done if people who confess faith do not walk by faith. You see, if there's no love for Christ, as Jesus said, being demonstrated by obedience to the word of Christ, there is little chance the person is alive in Christ. They must repent they must repent and they must do works that are worthy of repentance. We're not saying that people work to be saved. We're saying that works are a product of salvation. It's the difference between the root and the fruit. The root is faith, okay? The fruit is works. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. It's easy to get down on Israel until you look in the mirror closely, amen? Yeah. Well, Father, this... All of this goes for all of us. You have, you've called us to a life that blesses you, a life that is consistent with your word. As Paul says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So Lord, I pray that you would convict us, each of us individually, with where we're at in our lives with you. And that Lord, you would humble us and energize our repentance. Set us straight, Lord. Lord and help us walk before you in a way that is worthy of you. And as Paul says to the church, not to boast against Israel, because we are no better. We need as much grace as they do. So Lord, fill us with your spirit, and just help us to walk, Lord, consistent with your word. Help us to live by grace. As Paul says, help us to be taught by grace to deny ungodliness and to live righteously in this present age as we look forward to you coming, or to us going. So Lord, we thank you, we love you, and um, we just bless your name, amen.